morning, Woodside Community Church. Excited to be here. Hope you are as well. Uh, BJ stole my thankfulness thunder. Thank everybody that I wanted to thank. We'll do it again. Uh, we do want to thank Helen Baptist Church. Uh, they came up and did an amazing job for us. Um, put a lot of time and energy and resources into that nursery. Um, babies and little kids are a sign of health and life in a church, and we're excited that we have a place now where ours can be um, safe and secure and, and have a place to play. I, I can speak from experience that, man, it's difficult to worship and to pay attention while you're wrestling a one-year-old. Um, so it's good to have a place now where those, where those kids can be and, and enjoy the time and where you can come in here and pay attention and worship. Um, so thank you to Kellen Baptist Church. Also, do want to thank the choir. Yesterday was a blast. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Beautiful weather, good games, good fellowship, uh, good food. I learned some things that I'm not sure that I wanted to learn. Um, I learned from John and Juliet that the fish eyes and brains are the best part of the fish. Uh, I'm not particularly comfortable with that. Uh, but I did promise uh, John that I would eat one fish eye with him. So I'll do it. I won't like it, but I'll do it. Um, but thank you guys just for all your hard work and service um, to us. But now we've got work to do. Uh, we got to continue along on our way. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 this morning. We've got something a bit different uh, this time. Remember, we've discussed on a number of occasions how Mark, compared to the other three Gospels, Mark is the action Gospel. Mark's focus is on what Jesus does and not so much on what Jesus says or what he teaches. But that doesn't mean that there isn't any teaching. Our passage this morning is the first extensive teaching of Jesus in the book of Mark. And in fact, there are only two places in the entire book of Mark where we have extensive recordings of Jesus' teaching. Here in Mark 4 and then coming up in Mark 13. So this is significant. Mark wrote this part down for a reason. Jesus is his teaching here, and we finally have some of it recorded. But that teaching is a little bit different than what we might expect because Jesus is teaching in parables. And we've seen a few parables already, a few short ones. We saw the new cloth sewn on the old garment, new wine and the old wine skins. Those are short little parables. But our passage today is the first sustained parable of Jesus, and it is the first parable that he gives us, and then he explains us. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is this parable, the parable of the sower, that stands first in a long series of multiple parables. This parable kind of lays out the general pattern of parables. This parable is the key to understanding all the other parables. All right? You don't get this parable, you don't get the rest of them. This parable is kind of the parable of the parables, because right? this parable deals with understanding and hearing the word and the reason for the different responses um, that there are to Jesus' teaching. So this parable is key. We've got to get this one right. And this parable deals with one of the greatest questions that we all have to wrestle with at some time in our lives as Christians. Why doesn't the hearing of the teaching of Jesus produce the same result in every person? Why do the scribes and the Pharisees so misunderstand Jesus while the apostles eventually get it? Why doesn't the same message have the same effect? Which is ultimately the question, why are some saved and why are others not? This is an important question. So it is in our passage this morning that we are going to encounter some of the deepest theological mysteries in the entire Bible. Right? So we've got to put on our, our thinking caps. Right? We've got some really heavy, weighty stuff this morning that we've got to cover. So we'll spend a few minutes at the beginning just kind of talking about parables in general. 
what they were, why Jesus used them, and then we'll spend the chunk of our time specifically looking at the parable of the sower. Jesus teaches the, the parable to the crowds, but he only explains the parable to his disciples and his followers. So we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Now you can find it there, put it inside your bulletin. This is God's word. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and set it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfaithful, fruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that your um, word would do its thing this morning, Father. I pray that you would accomplish what you desire to accomplish in this place. And I pray that you would get all of the glory. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so our crowds are back. We've been seeing a lot of interaction with the crowds. We're always crowding around Jesus. He's forced into a boat, and he's teaching to these crowds in parables. We've got four parables in a row here in Mark. We're going to look at one this week, and we'll look at the next three the next time. But they are all ultimately about the same thing. Alright, we read Luke chapter 8 earlier. That is the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke tells us in verse 1, he makes it a little more clear what Jesus is teaching about. Luke 8.1 says, Soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Then we have these four parables. So these parables are about the kingdom. Remember all the way back in Mark 1.15, these were the first words out of the mouth of Jesus. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But remember what the Jews thought when they thought kingdom. They could probably look around every day and see Roman soldiers, Roman flags, tax collectors for the Romans, Roman buildings, the Roman 
kingdom was all around them. When they thought of the kingdom of God, they thought of their freedom and of their destruction of the kingdom of Rome. But as we've already seen a couple of times, Jesus kind of shows up and says, ah, well, not quite exactly. They hear kingdom, they hear freedom and the end of Rome. And then all of a sudden, here's this Jesus guy talking about the kingdom, and he's telling a story about a farmer, a seed, and some soil. But these are not just stories. These are parables. Jesus loves teaching in parables. There are about 60 different parables in the Gospels. We have a lot of them in Matthew and Luke. We have just a few here in Mark. And we actually have no parables in the Gospel of John. So what is a parable? Well, the word basically means something that is placed alongside something else for the purpose of clarification or comparison or illustration. Right? The goal of a parable is to teach a specific lesson. But that's not all a parable does. Jesus tells us that parables do two primary things. Parables act as a type of spiritual sifting. We love one of the things that parables do, and we're pretty uncomfortable with the other thing that they do. Parables conceal and harden, as well as reveal and save. Conceal and harden, reveal and save. Let's start with the tough one. It's there in verses 10 through 12. The crowds are gone. They've left. It's just Jesus and the 12 and a few other guys, and they specifically ask Jesus, why are you teaching like this? Why do you teach in parables? And he responds, For those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Remember, Mark really likes Isaiah. Mark's always quoting from the book of Isaiah. And Jesus' words here come straight out of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, which reads, And God said, he's talking to Isaiah, God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Not an easy passage. You don't hear lots of people memorizing Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. What's going on here? Why conceal and harden? What is Jesus doing? Jesus, why not just explain it clearly to the crowds? Now, as we've seen, the Bible is pretty clear that not everyone is saved. We saw last week with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that there comes a time, eventually, where God pulls back His saving Spirit. Back in Genesis, in the story of Moses, we're talking about Moses and the Pharaoh. In the exact same story, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God eight times. But in the very same story, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart six times. Pharaoh hardened his own heart eight. God does the hardening of Pharaoh's heart six times. Then in Romans 1, Paul writes that man was so sinful, that man had so rejected what was so clear about God, that he gave them over to a debased mind. God gave them over to what they wanted. And we're going to talk about this more a little bit as we go, but parables act in a way as a judgment of God. They confirm people in their hard-heartedness and sin. They hide the truth from those who have no desire to hear it. They are a tool that God uses to further harden those who have already hardened themselves. But parables also reveal and save. In verse 11, Jesus says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom 
of God. It has been given to them. It is a gift. God has revealed it to him. They didn't figure it out on their own. So God is also using these parables to reveal the good news to those who are the good soil. But you should already start to be wondering. This has already started to be looming in your mind. Wait, who is the good soil? And why is the good soil good? That's what we're going to look at in this parable. So that's just kind of a really brief introduction to parables in general. But now let's really get into the meat of this specific parable. This is the first one he gives us and he explains to us. And it's referred to generally by three different names. The parable of the sower, parable of the seed, and the parable of the soils. And as I think we're going to see, um, based on the emphasis of the end of the parable itself, that the parable of the soils is the most appropriate title. But right away, notice something there in verse 14. I think we generally skip over this. Like, oh, we've got to get to the soils. Which one am I? Who's saved and who isn't? But don't miss verse 14. What is the sower sowing? He is sowing the Word. The Word is the seed. This is how God's kingdom comes. It comes by the Word. The Jews wanted it to come by force. They wanted the Jesus to show up on a horse with a sword and to wipe out the Romans and to establish by force their kingdom. But Jesus says quite simply, no, 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 the kingdom comes through the Word. The Word is key. It is absolutely central to everything that God does. We saw in Sunday school a few weeks ago how it is through the Word that God creates life. It is through His Word that God creates His own people. The Word is central, and it must be central to everything that we do here. That's why every Sunday we want to pray the Word and sing the Word and read the Word and preach the Word every Sunday morning. The seed is the Word, and it is through the Word that God brings growth and life and change. We must keep the Word central. That goes for us as individuals as well. Listen, honestly, you you cannot be a Christian and not care about God's Word at all. You just can't be. You cannot be a Christian and never read God's Word. It just doesn't make any sense. Do you know anything about the Bible? Do you Read it regularly. When was the last time you even cracked it open? The word is absolutely critical to our individual lives and our corporate lives. And this parable makes that very clear here. It is the word that brings life. So God sows the word. And then there are four different responses that Jesus lays out and explains for us. We could call them these four. Write these down. We have the unresponsive heart, the impulsive heart, the preoccupied heart, and the responsive heart. Unresponsive, impulsive, preoccupied, and responsive. Got those? All four. Notice the percentages here, by the way. We got four soils. Only one of them is good. I didn't do very well in math in school, but I think that that is 25%. One over four. All right? Only one of the soils is good. Only one of the soils bears fruit and brings life. Right, now, the point is not specific numbers. It's not like 25% of the people you share the word with will be saved. That's not the point. But I think it's pretty clear that the vast majority of people who hear the word will not and do not respond. It is the minority that responds to the word and is saved. There are insiders and there are outsiders. There is the crowd and there are the followers. There are those who are saved and there are those who are not And here it seems to be the case that those that are not saved vastly outnumber those that are. 
So first, let's start with the unresponsive, or the indifferent part, the hard ground, or the path. Right? It lands on hard ground, seed can't penetrate down into the soil, so it just sits there on top, it starts getting baked by the sun, and then not only that, we're told that birds, representing Satan, come in and they snatch up the word before it can take root and bear fruit. The word is heard. Listen, every one of these four soils hears the word, but in this case, it goes in one ear and out the other. There is no actual hearing. And I'm sure there are some in here who are the hard ground or the path. Just based on the numbers, there are definitely some. You're, you're technically here. The words that I'm speaking are technically entering your ears, but nothing is actually getting through. You're not paying attention. You're either asleep or your mind is elsewhere, or you're just completely zoned out. There is no real hearing happening. You're already thinking about lunch. Man, are we going to go to sweet basil? Or you're already thinking about the things that you have to do all afternoon. You're already checking your watch and frustrated. Man, is this guy really going to go long again? Is he really going to preach for over 40 minutes? Come on, we don't have time to talk about God's Word for over 40 minutes, right? Are you paying attention at all to the Word preached? Listen, I honestly... Don't care if you pay attention to me. It's not about me. I'm not that important. I'm really not that interesting. But God's word is. Do you care about God's word? Are you listening to the word? The second soil is the rocky ground. Now this is the impulsive part. The ground is rocky. There isn't much soil. So the seed tries to grow, but it doesn't take root. The sun scorches it and it withers and dies. No life. Jesus says that this soil are those who respond immediately to the word with joy. They get really excited and really passionate about this whole Jesus thing for a little while. Everything looks good for a few minutes or for a few however long, but then over time there comes some sort of difficulty. This whole Christian thing doesn't go exactly as they think that it should, and they give up and they fall away. Now, Jesus is pretty clear. But for some reason, many churches and evangelistic organizations have completely ignored Jesus' teaching here. This one misunderstanding of this soil, I think, is one of the main contributors to the weak condition of churches in America today. Listen, I'm from the South. Nathan is from the South. My friend Josh in the back, he's from the South. We can personally speak to the truth of this. The South is full of second soil people. The rocky Ground, all right, the South, what is it called? It's called the Bible Belt. Everyone up here assumes that everyone down there is Christian because that's the Bible Belt, right? But listen, it's just not true. Christianity is cultural down there. You're just born into it. I spent half my time down there trying to convince some people that they weren't Christian so that then I could then evangelize them. Everyone is just kind of born into it. At some point in life, they went to church, they got all emotional, they prayed some prayer, they walked some aisle, they, you know, kind of got into this thing for a while, and then they were told, all right, you're good to go, congratulations, you're a Christian. Or some churches down there, a church I used to attend, they go out, they do evangelism, they hand out some tracts, they say, all right, so repeat after me, you'd say the words, and then you'd pat them on the back, all right, all right, congratulations, now you're a Christian. But these people are never seen again. They are never connected to a local church, and there is no evidence whatsoever of a change in their lives. Listen, that's not conversion. We cannot call these people Christians. Jesus says that there will be evidence. There will be fruit. Why would we presume upon God? 
Why would we declare that he has done something that we don't know that he has done? That is a bold thing to do, and I will not do it. Jesus makes it pretty clear here that it doesn't matter if you pray some prayer or walk some mile or get all excited about Jesus for a short period of time. If sometime down the line you're out of church, you have no interest in the things of God, you're not following Jesus, and you're back to living just like you were, you prove not that you were saved and then lost your salvation, but that you were never saved in the first place. You just got all emotional and felt guilty once. But there was never a change of heart. There was never a new birth. Because as we've looked at a hundred times in here, an actual new birth, an actual encounter with the risen Lord, an actual encounter with grace always does something. It always displays itself. There is always evidence or fruit. And Jesus gives us a pretty stern warning here. That if there has been no lasting fruit, if there is no perseverance, then there has been no salvation. Hear me out here. No one is justified by a profession of faith. Does that make you uncomfortable? No one is justified by a profession of faith. All kinds of people have said that they believe in Jesus and were not saved. Jesus himself specifically says this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who comes and says to me, Lord, Lord, go into the kingdom. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. The words, I believe in Jesus, are not some magical incantation that if you just repeat them, you'll be saved. It's not like Beetlejuice. If you just say it three times, he'll show up and you'll be saved. We are not justified by Words. We are justified by God. We must actually possess the faith that we profess if we are to be justified. God must actually do a work in our heart. Listen, guys. God takes salvation very seriously. And we must do so as well. We have to stop cheapening salvation. We have to stop trying to make being a Christian the easiest thing possible. We have to stop telling people that if you just pray this prayer, if you just repeat these words, then you will be a Christian. Jesus says, count the cost. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, repent and believe. He turns people away who are not willing to give it all up for him. We have to stop calling everyone a Christian who says some nice things about Jesus and has some mild interest in Jesus. The crowd had mild interest in Jesus. But those in the crowd were not followers. They were not saved. Remember a few weeks ago when we specifically looked at the crowds. We figured out that Jesus ministered to tens of thousands of people over the course of his three-year ministry. But what happened? After the resurrection, right before the ascension, how many of them were there? One hundred and twenty. Tens of thousands of presentations of the gospel. Tens of thousands of people. One hundred and twenty followers. Examine your heart. What is your soil like? Is it rocky? And then the third soil, Jesus describes, it is the thorns. Seed falls among the thorns, but the thorns grow up quicker. Around the seed, they choke it and they kill it. Jesus explains that these are the people who hear the word. There's some sort of initial response, but then the cares of the world come in, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things takes over and it chokes the word to death. And this is another controversial one. Somehow we've once again complicated Jesus' pretty clear teaching. 
Some people try to kind of twist what he says here. They, they call this third soil, and they say, oh, well, those are, the, those are the carnal Christians. And they argue that, you know, they've actually been saved, but their lives, have, they never bring forth any fruit. There's never been any real change. Jesus is their Savior, but he's not their Lord. No big deal. And this has been just as detrimental to the health of the American church as telling everyone and their mother that they're a Christian. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a carnal Christian. Right? It's just a contradiction in terms. Right? A Christian is a little Christ. It is one who follows Jesus. Right? The whole idea of a carnal Christian just doesn't make sense. Can you imagine 2,000 years ago, one of these carnal Christians going up to Jesus? Like, hey Jesus, uh, you know, just wanted to let you know, I believe in you. I prayed the prayer, so count me in. Right? I'm, I'm one of the saved ones. But, you know... I'm going to go off this whole take up your cross thing, some of this other stuff. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I'm going to go off and do my own thing, but no big deal, right? You know, I, I said I believe in you so I can continue doing whatever I want, right? Thanks, Jesus. No, right? That's obviously ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. We've said it a hundred times. Make sure you don't hear me wrong. I'll, I'll reemphasize this. You cannot be good enough. You cannot save yourself. Your works cannot save you. It is all grace. It is Jesus' work in your place. That is the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the salvation that saves alone never stays alone. It always produces fruit. The works don't come before the salvation. They come after the salvation. They are the fruit or the evidence of the salvation. Following Christ, discipleship, sanctification, whatever you want to call it, there must be some sort of of change. Listen, we will not be perfect. We continue to wrestle and struggle with sin our entire lives. Two steps forward, one step back. But there must be some sort of progression or change. Is your heart the third soil? And finally, we have our fourth soil. We have the only good soil. We have the only soil that produces any life or any fruit. Now, there's one big, looming question that you've got to be asking yourself. What is it that makes the good soil good? Why is the good soil good and the other three soils bad? I really want you to think about this. Here's the question. Why are you a Christian and your brother isn't? Why are you a Christian and your closest friend is not? What makes the good soil good? Why are the bad soils bad? Some have tried to argue that it is because there's something more righteous about the person who receives the word and produces fruit. There must have been something better about that person. That's why they're good. That's why the seed produces fruit. But surely, after our 10 or 11 weeks working through Mark, we all know that that cannot be it. That's what the Pharisees thought. That's what every other religion in the world teaches. They teach that those that are saved are saved because they are better than those that are not. They kept the rules better, they were more holy, or they were more moral. They earned their salvation better than the other people did. But we know that that cannot be it. The gospel does not allow for such an interpretation. Why not? Because the gospel, the good news, starts off with the bad news. And it's there in Romans 3. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. None of us are seeking after God. I'm not making that up. That's coming straight out of the text. Plus, if the good soil is good because that person is better, then what does that do to salvation? It makes it according to your works. It is something that you have done, not 
God. It completely destroys the idea of grace. You now have something to boast about. You are better than other people, so you will be saved. But that's not the gospel. That is every other religion. Keep these rules, do these things, and you will be saved. But that's not the gospel. The good soil cannot be good because that person is better or more righteous than all the other soils. So what is it? Others have tried to argue that the good soil is good because that person of their own will made the right decision. They chose Jesus while the bad soils didn't choose Jesus. They say that's simply it. They chose Jesus, bad soils didn't. didn't. That's the difference. But is that really any different than our previous explanation? Think about it. My younger sister, Ashley, she's not a Christian. It's not a secret. She's not embarrassed about it. She's not embarrassed about it at all. She thinks what I believe is crazy. I think what she believes doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I love her dearly. She's, she's brilliant. I love talking to her about faith and Jesus and science. She, she challenges me. She forces me to think well about the things that I believe. She's a ridiculously hard worker and doing really good things for kids in inner city Memphis that previously had no hope whatsoever. I'm a Christian. She very much is not. Though, I, listen, I am far from giving up on her. But the point I want to make is that we basically have the exact same background. We have the same father as a pastor. We attended the same church our entire lives. We sat under the same teaching our entire lives. We have the same Christian family teaching us and encouraging us. We went to the same university, took the same classes, and were involved in the same Christian ministries. But I'm a Christian, and she is not. Why not? Is it simply because I chose to follow Jesus and she didn't? Think about it. I don't think that is the case. What would be the problem with that? If that's all the difference that it is, that I got something right, I chose and she didn't, then I, by definition, am smarter than her or better than her or something. All right, listen. If we're playing a game of trivia and Joanna gets a question right and I get it wrong, she chooses correctly, I do not, it is because she possessed or had some sort of knowledge that I did not have, right? In that area, she was smarter than me. If it was like Bible trivia, she'd rub it in my face. You're the pastor, you're supposed to know this, but, but you got this, but she got it right. She has something that she should boast about. She knew something that I didn't. She gets credit for her right choice. At some time in her life, she read something or studied something and earned that information. I didn't. She worked, I didn't. She worked, she should get the credit for it. If salvation is based just on my choice, if I am a Christian just because I chose Jesus and my sister isn't because she did not, then I absolutely have something to boast about. There was something better or smarter about me that got this question right. And listen, this isn't just some random trivia question. This is the most important of all the questions. All right? This is the eternal question. I got the only question right that really matters, and she didn't. You better believe if that's the difference between the good soil and the bad soil, that I deserve some credit. I did the choosing. I want some credit. But this too completely destroys the idea of grace. If it is just all about my choice, if it is just all about what I do, if I deserve the credit, then my salvation was not by faith, but it was by works. I was the ultimate Decider. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. I deserve to do a little boasting. 
But in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Ephesians 2 says you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Some people try to describe salvation like, oh, you're stuck in the ocean floating on a life raft and someone just needs to throw you a line and then you grab it and you'll be saved. No, Ephesians 2 says you are face down in the sand at the bottom of the ocean. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. By grace you have been saved through faith. What's the next line? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of your works. Why? So that no man may boast. John 3 says that we must be born again. The good soil is good because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on a dead, sinful heart. That's what grace is. That's why Christianity is different. In every other religion, you try and save yourself. In Christianity, God God does the saving for you because you cannot do it yourself. It's grace. It is Jesus working in our place and us resting in His work. This is the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. I'm about to say what is treated as a dirty word in some Christian circles. Hear me out. It doesn't make any sense though because this word is all over the Bible. And that word is election. Listen. Every Christian believes in election. You have to believe in election because it's in the Bible. Right? People just believe different things about election. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, Even as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of His will. That's election. It is biblical. I'm not making it up. It cannot be denied. It's in the text. But for some reason, people freak out about it. What about free will, right? If, if God elects us, then we're just robots. But again, that's just silly and not biblical. I'm saying about this. What's the big deal with free will, by the way? Listen, if I'm like running straight towards hell, please violate my free will. Please just save me. Please do something to rescue me. Please. But the Bible does say that we have some, it says very clearly that we have some sort of free will. So the accusation that election, which is also biblical, violates free will, which is also biblical, determines that people don't understand what election is. So let me explain. Election is simply the idea that God opens our eyes. He gives us the ability to choose Him freely. You can think of election like this, and I I didn't come up with this. I wish I did. But imagine, we've got a bunch of blindfolded people sprinting towards a giant pit full of fire. Right? They're sprinting straight towards their death. Right? So you witness this. You see this. You, you run to the closest one and you say, stop. Stop running. You're like, oh, why? You say, you're going to die. He says, oh, no, I'm not. We're running towards the beach. I can, I can feel it getting warmer already. We're, we're on our way to the beach. And you say, no, you're going to die. But he keeps running along his way. So what do you do? You run up to him, you grab the blindfold off of his face, and you pull it off. What happens? Now his eyes are open. He can see the giant pit of flames in front of him. And he said, what? There's a pit of flames there. If I run into that, I am going to die. And he chooses to stop running. That's election. Did you violate this man's free will? No. You opened his eyes. You saved his life. 
Election is God opening our eyes to reality. We're dead in our trespasses. We're all sinners. We're all merrily running along straight to hell. And God graciously opens up our eyes so that we can finally see clearly and choose to repent, to run in the other direction and follow Him. That's all election is. And thank God for it. Because we would all be utterly lost without it. Because Romans 3, again, is pretty clear. None of us are good. None of us are seeking God. We are all running straight in the other direction. We need Him to open our eyes. We need Him to show us reality so that we can freely make the correct decision, which is to repent and believe and follow. We need grace. When I was in high school... Coolest thing that ever happened to like a 16-year-old kid was the movie The Matrix. Did you see this movie? I just thought it was like the best thing that had ever been made to a 16-year-old um, little boy. The movie The Matrix. No one has seen it. It's kind of old. But what happens in The Matrix is this movie, and all these people are living this life, and it actually turns out that it's a fantasy, right? It's none of it's real. And so you have that pivotal scene where this guy comes to the main character and he says, "There's two pills." He says, "There's a red pill and a blue pill." Keep the, eat the blue one, go back on, you're living your fantasy, you won't know the truth. But if you take the red pill, what happens? Your eyes are opened to reality. You are informed and told, and all of a sudden now you see clearly that everything you have ever believed was a lie. That's all election is. It is the red pill. It is God opening our eyes to reality. Once you know the truth, you choose to live and act differently. That's election. It's biblical. It is grace. It is God gracefully coming in and saving us from our own sinful choices. He gives us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we freely choose rightly. Two weeks ago, we mentioned a paradox in Christianity. Remember, you have a paradox when you have two things, two truths that seem to contradict each other, but they're both true. Right? That's what a paradox is. We talked about how Christianity is both extremely difficult and extremely easy at the same time. They're both true, but it seems to contradict themselves. This week, this morning, we have one of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian faith. Right, we've been discussing God's sovereignty and salvation. Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God who saves. It is grace. We do not save ourselves. But then look down at the emphasis there in verse 20 in our text. The good soil are those who hear and accept and bear Fruit. Those are all active things that the good soil, the individual himself, does. The emphasis in the parable is on man's responsibility to respond to the word. Nothing we've talked about in these last few minutes concerning election makes us any less responsible to choose and to act and to respond to the gospel. In theology, this is called compatibilism. Sounds fancy, it's not. Compatible. What is that? Two things are compatible when they work well together. Melissa and I are pretty darn compatible, except for my occasional lapses of sinful idiocy. But we work well together. That's what compatible means. So in theology, compatibilism is simply the idea that these are two equally true truths in Scripture. God's sovereignty, very clear and true in Scripture, and man's responsibility, very clear in Scripture. God is totally sovereign. He is in control of what happens, and we are free creatures who are responsible for our choices and our decisions. We can't handle this idea for some reason. One camp says, oh, it's only God's sovereignty. And the other camp gets mad and says, oh, no, it's only 
free will and man's choice. No, but Scripture maintains that it's both. God's sovereignty does not overrule or rule out the idea that we are free and called to respond. Think about it and, and the order of it in the illustration. The guy comes and rips off the blindfold. Right? That is God's action. God comes in. He is the initiator. He's the one that comes in and acts and, and saves us. Then we are free now to choose and respond to Him freely. That is all that it is saying. Salvation is by grace alone. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. They're taught to us side by side in the Bible, sometimes even in the same passage. In Luke 22, 22, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, as Jesus, goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So here we see Jesus' arrest controlled and predetermined by God, but here also Judas is still held morally responsible for his choice, for his action, sovereignty and responsibility. Both are taught to us by the same divine authority. Thus, both of them are equally true. We've got to stop playing one off the other. We have to hold the two together. And we are also, both of these things are taught to us in our parable this morning. This parable is compatibilistic. In verses 1 through 9, the emphasis seems to be on the sower. It is on what God does in sowing the seed. But then in the explanation in verses 13 through 20, the emphasis seems to shift to the soil, to our hearts, to our responsibility to hear and to respond. It is both. The focus at the end of this parable is on what we are called to do. Notice that word here. It's there in verse 3. Or listen, it's there in verse 9. It is used ten times in this one chapter. This parable is about hearing. All four soils in this parable hear the word. But only one hears and accepts and responds. Jesus calls us to repent and to believe and to follow Him. It is only those who do so that are saved. So you've heard, but how have you heard? Have you just heard or have you understood? Have you just heard or have you responded? And this then takes us back to the purpose of the parables. Why did he teach in parables? He taught to conceal and to harden, to reveal and to save. The word always does something. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It always does something. Sometimes we're tempted to think that the Word isn't accomplishing anything when no one gets saved. But the Word always does something. It is either enlightening or it is hardening. You may think that the Word is doing nothing, but it may be performing its other function, which is to continue to harden you further until you get to the point where you are seeing but not perceiving and hearing but not understanding. Do not be that soil. Which soil are you? What is the word doing to you right now? The end of this parable stresses our responsibility. We are called to hear, to understand, to accept, and to bear fruit. We are called to act. The word is doing something in your heart this morning. Is it enlightening or is it ardent? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is the gospel. This is the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It is grace. It is Jesus in your 
place. It is saying that you cannot do it. You cannot keep the rules. You cannot be good enough. But Christ was good enough for you. Christ kept the rules for you. Christ took your punishment for you. And then we have the great exchange. He gets your death. You get his life. He gets your wickedness and sinfulness. You get his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's what grace is. It is God coming in and working and saving us when we could not save ourselves. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are a merciful and loving and saving God. We thank you that while we were still your enemies, Christ died for us. Father, forgive us for our sin. Uh, forgive us for how quick we are to forget what you have done for us. Father, lead us to repentance and belief. Father, make us more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this would be a place where disciples are, um, are created, Father. I pray that your word would do a work in our hearts and that you would make us more like your Son. Father, that there would be growth and, and advancement and progression for your glory. Father, lead us not into temptation, Father. Deliver us from evil, Father. Make us more like our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it and to do so together. Father, we thank you for even these difficult passages. We confess that there are things that we don't quite understand. We know that your ways are not our way. We know that you are so far above us, Father. But we thank you for descending to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for grace, Father. Pray that you would work in this place. Pray all this in Jesus' name.